The Higher Side Chats doesn't start with underwear ads or guilt-tripping donation pleas, nor would I ever commit the cardinal sin of podcasting and interrupt the flow mid-show to show you an unrelated sponsor. But the free first-hour episodes do have to start with a little PSA before we get into it to ever so quickly remind slash inform listeners both old slash new that you're about to get into what I'm sure is a great first hour of a high-level interview, but that means you're missing half the show. If you like what we do around here, get yourself a THC Plus membership and listen to the full two-hour interviews as they were really designed to be and as I know you would enjoy them most. Give a little and actually get a little more in return of the thing you're actually engaging with. Five episodes every month, plus forum access, community comments, downloads to all the closing cover songs, a plus show RSS feed to use with any private RSS feed supported app, and the occasional joint session bonus shows, which include the messages you might leave me about your own theories, experiences, or otherworldly encounters at thehiresidechats.com slash voicemail. If you're not quite sure, if you just want to feel us out, or if you're only here for this particular episode, no worries. New first-time subscribers get a seven-day free trial when you sign up at thehiresidechats.com. Cancel anytime. Try it out, because it's so important to feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go. And with that said, let's get on with it already, huh? In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. This is the way, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and as hard as it can be to keep from getting too wrapped up in the daily outrage, stressed out by the fear-filled news cycle, or distracted by the razzmatazz of the celebrity circus, these are the tools the system uses to suck up your days and keep you from exploring any of the deeper mysteries of life. Coupled with one's financial woes, career commitments, and various other matrix entrapments, it's not hard to see how a person can easily go through life without ever carving out the time to explore or expand one's consciousness or engage with esoteric practices that can vastly improve your understanding of life, help you manifest your true will, and even heal you in ways you didn't think possible. Well, it seems like shamans and sages around the world are loosening their lips and encouraging the spread of these ideas and practices in a way they previously didn't, as if they sense the time is right, and maybe it is. So we go to those who have a head start and can share the insights gleaned from their own disciplined exploration of the great beyond, like today's guest, Daniel Moeller. Daniel is a writer, comic book artist, educator, and shamanic practitioner. Formerly an adjunct professor, he has extended his teaching to other areas of life. He is also a sanctioned teacher of the Pachaguti Mesa tradition, a form of Peruvian shamanism. And by being trained in multiple spiritual disciplines, Daniel uses the art of shamanic healing to help others during times of transition and transformation. He is also the creator of the comic anthology series Psychonaut Presents, born out of his shamanic training experiences. Red Mass, an urban fantasy novel filled with conspiracy theories, UFOs, and psychedelics, and the Simon Myth Chronicles, his Gnostic comic series. 
He's also written two excellent books, one being Shamanic Kabbalah, detailing a system of Kabbalah mixed with Peruvian shamanism, and the soon-to-be-released second title, The Shamanic Soul, which methodically lays out the hows and whys of taking the shamanic path in your own life. Bound to be a good time, the walking, wounded healer archetype, esoteric artist, and psychonaut supreme, Daniel, welcome to the higher side. Thanks, Greg. I finally got to come on your podcast and be introduced by you. So my career is complete. <laughs> wow. Wow. I, I like it. If anybody puts that on the resume, I'm certainly uh, thankful and impressed. <laughs> and I appreciate you taking the time to do this and sharing so much of your work with me. I'm envious of your work ethic, man. The comics, the two books, and also the dedication to some pretty deep and complex esoteric systems and practices. All very impressive and a fellow Missourian to boot. That's right. But if we were going to start by talking about your life a bit, in your upcoming book, The Shamanic Soul, you write, there were numerous times when the mysterious tendencies of the supernatural nudged my quaint little world. In fact, one of my earliest memories of life centers on a witch-like figure watching me through the window, a figure no one else in my family could see, who has followed me through the years. Other occurrences have manifested over time, countless instances of ghostly specters, UFOs, and unnatural manifestations. These things have always just been a part of life. I never had a moment of waking up to these realities. They were merely apparent. <laughs> well, I like hearing that. Can you elaborate on some of those strange experiences that were potent and impactful? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I've always felt sort of weird. Uh, about it just in the sense that everyone else around me never really saw these other aspects of reality. And, you know, I was raised in the Ozarks and I think that, you know, you're raised in Missouri and there's the mindset of, you know, just kind of keeping all that tamped down and, you know, making the person kind of feel like they're crazy and whatnot. But thankfully I did have a couple of friends in my purview that shared some of these experiences and, I don't really know what it was. I don't know why, you know, I mean, really my very first memory is a supernatural memory of this witch-like figure when I was four years old getting up from a nap and she was just staring at me through the window with my whole family there and I kept trying to get them to look at her and to acknowledge her presence, but it never happened. Hmm. <laughs> and and from then it was like oh little old Danny and his crazy imagination and I'm thankful that I never allowed myself to be tamped down by that sort of perspective and I just allowed my imagination to run rampant so whether or not it's been my own imaginative framework that has gotten ahead of me <laughs> throughout my life and I've just ran with it or if these are actual experiences you know I don't really know and I don't really care it's my life experience and it's a part of who I am and it's made me who I am today. And it makes reality a heck of a lot more interesting and fun than the normal mundane mode of blue pilldom. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, you know, that was the first real experience just of consciousness I had in general. And it's never really let up. I've always had these just weird occurrences in my life and it wasn't really until I started diving into the shamanic modalities that I started getting really a handle on it. It was always very chaotic for me. I never really understood it. 
I would feed off of it creatively and play with it. And I experimented with all sorts of other magical modalities to try to understand it and try to have a relationship with it. But shamanism was really that piece that that really started making things click for me. So, yeah, I don't know if I touched upon what you'd like to touch upon there, but that's kind of my perspective of the situation. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, that is really amazing. I'm very envious because I've always wanted to have more experiences. I've had a few little things that have shown me that there's definitely more to reality than what we see on the surface, but they've always been very brief and kind of minor, but with a big impact. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about how this came to you so quickly. Oftentimes, especially in ufology or shamanic lineages, people try to find some pattern, whether it's like just certain genetics. Sometimes there seems to be a bloodline that that has a lot of it in there or some factor like living near an Indian graveyard or something. Is there any kind of factor? I mean, you say your 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 parents didn't really encourage this stuff, but did you ever get any indication, subtle or otherwise, that your parents or grandparents had the site, as they say, or ever discover a reason that it happened to you and not other people? Um, You know, I actually don't see that for me personally, that it, there's anything special about it. I don't have like a, you know, an old Cherokee grandmother or great grandmother or great aunt that I interacted with that, you know, nothing like that, nothing in my bloodline. And I don't think there was anything in particular about where I was raised. For me, I actually just always kind of felt like it was an aspect in every human being that we ascribe to and that we are all open to and we all have. I don't think that there's really any one particular person or type of person on the planet that is more attuned to the other worlds or the supernatural, what I call the daimonic realms. Other people may use the pronunciation daimonic. I prefer daimonic and those ethereal planes of existence. Hmm. I just think that, you know, some people just have certain circumstances that just activate it maybe more than others. For me, it was almost like a need to engage with those realms because I grew up in an environment where, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of racism, a lot of rednecks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was the Ozarks. I love I appreciate where I was raised, but there was a lot of people that were very close minded and didn't allow creativity to blossom the way that it was thriving inside of me. I was an artist from the get-go, a writer, and those types of skills weren't really encouraged. It was more about just, you know, kind of stay in line with people, get a decent job, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, and work on cars, and that's it. And you got to be, this is the type a person that is a boy rather than this is a type of person that is, you know, Mm -hmm. this is a boy, this is a girl. Classifications were very important. And I felt the need to really break out of those from get-go. I don't know why it was just who I was. And so by engaging with those other realms and just really allowing myself to open up to them, I think that it was that desire to break free from some of the chains 
that I had growing up that really activated it and it grew over time. My shamanic training, there's a term that we throw around called rapport that is very important. That's very inherent to what shamanic modalities as opposed to just other religious systems. I would probably ascribe other earth honoring traditions like Wicca and things like that. They carry the same concept. And rapport is about having a relationship with those other realms, like just like you, like you would have a relationship with your wife or your children or a good friend, you know, I have to, you know, give my wife flowers. Mm. Um, well, I don't have to, but uh, you, you know, you have to treat the other person. Well, you have to give gifts. You have to give a little in order to receive. It's a reciprocal exchange. And so that was kind of the mode that I had always tacked onto from the beginning. And a lot of that was just done from, you know, me trying to engage in those other realms by drawing and writing and scribbling things out as a way of trying to communicate with those other realms. I see you, I acknowledge your presence. And then everywhere I went, you know, I just always had that desire for those other realms to manifest. And I don't think it always, you know, it doesn't always happen. And I also think that there is a tendency for people that I've worked with to think, well, I don't see the kind of things you do. And it's like, well, I don't see anything special. I think everybody experiences it in their own way. And you just have to find your own way in which you actually experience those daimonic realms and be okay with that and really embrace the way you have that relationship because it could be completely different. You know, there are some people that will literally see entities walking all over the place and whatnot. There are other people that interact more with smells and memories or just nuances of some sort of a psychic pool. Or, I mean, there's a multitude of ways to experience those other realms. And so trying to, you know, I try to, when I work with people or I just talk with people, work with people, if I just, and engaging with other individuals that are on this path, that's my encouragement to other people is you have your own, way and it's not going to look like mine and one person's way isn't better than the other so you just have to kind of find that niche and really move forward with that <laughs> i respect that but it's easy for the guy who sees witches and ufos to say oh it just comes natural and everybody can do it because i'm sitting over here feeling like helen keller of the spirit world i can't sense anything but you know i talk to a lot of people that can and so i just take their word for it most of the time but <laughs> hey i could just be crazy greg <laughs> <laughs> i guess that's possible and i mentioned the wounded healer archetype something that i'm noticing more and more even some people who have dramatic ufo encounters end up coming away with healing gifts or a calling to walk that path it all seems to be in the soup but another theme that keeps coming up for us here is the power of energy healing and you wrote in the book that of all the things you've seen, the results from a woman named Patty that you worked with were some of the most impressive. What is the story there? Yeah. So, you know, I may have had all of these experiences in my past, but I didn't really know how to make sense of them. My psyche was very fragmented. So I underwent a series of occurrences in my early adulthood that led to some 
pretty severe trauma for myself, and I ended up being diagnosed with PTSD. So during that time of my life, I was a completely broken person and couldn't really hold up a job. I couldn't even, there's no way I could have even gone on this podcast. I couldn't walk into a room of people or even shake hands with another person without having to vomit. It was a pretty severe case. And somebody had referred to me, there's a pretty strong, I'm in the Kansas City area now, and there's a very strong alternative spiritual community here. Huge. Like more so than anywhere I've almost seen in, anywhere in the country. And I had interacted with someone who had referred to this alternative healer. And that's not her real name, Patty. I just refer to her out of respect of her wanting to remain anonymous. But she had been trained in a variety of modalities, some of which was working with Leonard Crowdog from the Lakota tradition, as well as being involved in a vast array of energy healing experiments that were actually done in universities in the 80s and 90s. Hmm. and had a modality that helped me set on the path of what I call individuation. And Carl Jung uses that term as a way of being able to integrate those fragments of the psyche into a singular whole. And it was really through that process of taking those broken pieces and moving them together. It's a process of understanding oneself more so than ever before. And I began to understand some of my other etheric experiences more clearly and gain power over those as well as power over my own life down to just like the mundane things of my life. You know, I consider myself in a very successful place right now. I'm a very happy place in my life. I'm able to take care of my family, so on and so forth. And so there's this archetype that exists in shamanic cultures around the world that, you know, in the Western world, Western anthropologists have ascribed to it as the wounded healer motif. And it's because there are numerous shamanic initiations from various cultures where there's a brokenness that happens. Oftentimes that shamanic initiations can happen through an extreme sickness. And through that sickness, the person has a transcendent experience and they become initiated. They receive this uber power, <laughs> more so than they've ever had before. And they come out the other side a complete and whole person. And there's other ways that that happens rather than just through extreme sickness. You know, in other cultures, it could be, you know, circumcision. So there's like that wounded aspect there. It can happen through various dances where you are pierced. So there's a piercing of a flesh. So it's this way of tearing through the flesh in a way and understanding that you're something, I don't want to say more than the body, but there is something other than just the physical form. And for me, it was about integrating that other aspect of myself, that daimonic aspect with the physical that allowed me to kind of come into that place of integration. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, in my PTSD, I mean, if anybody, you know, has ever been in that place, they understand that a true trauma goes into the body. It's not just a psychic experience. So my immune system had completely tanked for about 10 years. And if that common cold came my way, I was out for sometimes two weeks. It would destroy my body. 
at one point in time, my there was a period of five years or so that my body was completely covered in these mass boils that were just constantly bleeding through seeping bandages. You know, I was always having to change them at, while I was at work. It was embarrassing. It was painful. I was in the hospital multiple times. So yeah, Patty, in my work with her, helped me get on that path of understanding how the human body is much more than just this physical organism. It is your consciousness itself. We store memory in the body. And thus, because we store memory in the body, we store trauma. And through different types of energy work and indigenous practices, we can start mending those pieces back together again and assisting each other towards a more holistic path. Now, I, I'm not going to say that it was only that at the same time. This was also an addendum to medical technology, traditional medical technology or mainstream, I guess I should say, medical technology that helped get me here as well. But I certainly, without this sort of indigenous energy healing component, I wouldn't have been able to get there. There's no way. That's why I finally found her because mainstream medical science wasn't getting me there. So I, I had to have this more holistic approach in order to move in that space and finally be healed of all of that. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you did find healing. And I do like stacking up those examples of people who do need something more than Western medicine because Western medicine is quite arrogant especially in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And if you're familiar with the show, you know, I'm always very skeptical of how we get in these situations. You mentioned circumcision. That's standardized childhood trauma. Right. <laughs> it's like, how do we get to a place? It's not an accident, you know, if you ask me, or using pills for every single illness and ignoring the wider self. I mean, <laughs> it's like if there's no money in it, Obviously, they're not going to go there. Right. But also, I guess there's money in circumcision because it's a line item on everybody's <laughs> uh, hospital bill. But obviously, I think there's something deeper there. And it's like, is it really ignorance? Are the people who structured Western society truly ignorant of these things? How do we just fall into standardized trauma, ignoring the larger self, the nine to five rat race? It all seems very intentional to me. Of course, we probably can only speculate. Yeah. I mean, I do think there is some intention there. I think that we have kind of fallen into it out of ignorance. It's just, it's part of the human psyche. And if you ever get into my book, Red Mass, there's a statement I have in there because it very heavily deals in conspiracy theories, as well as that kind of shamanic component and how all of that ties together. And I try to examine because I do think that there are people in this world that are trying to control us, of course. I mean, that's so obvious. Mm -hmm. um, but I think really the ultimate conspiracy is our own minds and our own <laughs> psyches and our own ability to sabotage ourselves and to sabotage our own success. I, at one point, I, I was almost crippled in my own knowingness of the vast amount of corruption that's going on in this world and the elites that are manufacturing 
our social media and manufacturing consciousness in such a way that is so unhealthy. But ultimately, I've had to just relinquish all that and know that the only conspiracy I can actually really truly solve is like me and myself and how I react mm. and how I respond to this in my own way and to only control what I know I can control and to send out to heal the things that I know I can heal. And for me, that's done through the expression of my art in my writing. Mm. And I'm not like trying to proselytize anything. I mean, it's, it's not that. It's just when every person finds their individuation and you just do your thing, you be you, like you're a good example of that, Greg. You are just you. Whether or not you see things or not, it doesn't matter. You're following your soul's path. And because of that, the impact that you're having on the world is huge and it's awesome and it's magnificent. And I'm not going to go into the terms of either positive or negative, because that gets us into this like weird dichotomy of reality that just, you know, that can go down a whole other rabbit hole <laughs> of conversation. But that's the thing. It's just like finding that soul aspect within ourselves and each person just following their soul in that way is where I think that, you know, we can relinquish ourselves of the, the overlords and their, and their grasp upon us. <laughs> Great points. Great points. Yes. Uh, the conspiracy mindset definitely does need to be checked once in a while and can lead to an unhealthy mental state and <laughs> needing to wake up breathing in a brown paper bag. But, you know, my goal has always been to make a better conspiracy culture or, you know, call that lofty, I guess. But mm -hmm. I feel like Alex Jones set a low bar for yeah. talking about this stuff in a better way. So that's yeah. always kind of been my goal is like all we're talking about here is a truer attempting to get to a truer picture of reality mm -hmm. and that has to improve your life it has to how can it not so right you know being aware of things and, and not being afraid to look at the darkness and just understand it as part of the raw reality you're living in i think it's important um they say ignorance is bliss but i think ignorance is ignorance i yep. mean of course you know i have friends who are still able to work that nine to five cubicle job and say they're happy. And maybe I'm a little jealous of that because I had to take the deep dive into building something myself. Cause I just knew I couldn't be happy otherwise. And that is the kind of the curse of, of waking up is like, Oh shit. All right. Now I have to take control of my life and maybe get something going here. And that kind of reminds me of a phrase you have in, I think it's in the shamanic soul where you, mention finding your flow. And that is a great way to say it. I'm sure there are a lot of people listening that feel like nothing ever goes right for them, or they just aren't passionate about anything, or they don't have time to get beyond the crisis of the day, because life can be pretty cutthroat sometimes. But this is the big game, finding one's flow, finding one's true will, and finding a way to express it as you came here to do. What would you say to people who are kind of stuck just treading water? Wow. Far be it for me to ever give anybody <laughs> <laughs> advice, even though I wrote a book on it. But I mean, my, my ultimate advice is, you know, and I think I do mention this in Shamanic Soul at the very end, I recommend everyone to take on the practices that I learned or that someone else learns and really ingrain yourselves in them. So you have to find a discipline in 
you have to just make that decision to just move forward from one state to the other. There's no motivational speaker or life coach or contrived platitude that will get you there or Facebook meme or whatever. You have to just make the decision that you're ready to just transmigrate, <laughs> to just to transfigure yourself, to move from one complete state to another and just dedicate yourself to it. And then when you do, I always recommend ascribe yourself to a certain methodology or a certain path, master it, and then throw it away, cast it off. Mm. Um, and I mentioned that at the very end of my book, just forget everything that I just told you. And there's an exercise I have in my book that comes from Robert Anton Wilson to mention the godfather of conspiracies. <laughs> and But Robert Anton Wilson in his book, Prometheus Rising, has an exercise that I call reality cosplay. I can't remember how he terms it, but it's just for a week, decide to just be a communist and fully embrace that ideology, live that ideology and be it for a week or a month or whatever. Choose your period of time and then throw it away and then try another, right? Try being a, a libertarian <laughs> fully, you know, and embrace it and live it fully and just get into a space where you can be in this hyper real state or this kind of meta state of being able to be above and beyond all of these isms so that you become more you in that process. You actually understand that there are positives and negatives to every single ism that is out there, but to dive into one particular ism is a danger. It's a narrow reality tunnel that you're not going to be able to get out of. But the goal is to kind of be, you know, beyond that, to just transcend, not like transcend, like, ah, oh, you're up in this thing of light, but just as a human, be able to just acknowledge all of the different modalities around you and find what works for you and apply it to yourself in a way that, like you say, it, it taps into your flow. But it also, it requires a willingness and a discipline to just finally be in a space to completely rearrange your life. And some people just aren't ready and willing to do that. And that's cool too. It doesn't make any one person better than any other. And if you're happy in that space that you're in, if somebody's happy in that nine to five, I personally like straddling, you mentioned that, and I personally like straddling both worlds because I do mm. work in nine to five and I do all this at the same time and I'm raising a family mm. and at first it was kind of, it felt kind of bipolar, but I kind of like now being on both sides of the equation because I, I'm getting medicine from both worlds because I, I find my place in reality more whenever I can sense and feel those two different extremes. And then one augments the other eventually, right. You know, and finding that balance. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I think that kind of perspective training is wise to put on a bunch of different hats and really get where people are coming from. It's good training for finding common ground with people. You know, we both came from environments where we felt out of place, but now I'm in like as liberal as it gets California and I can totally identify with what conservatives don't like about those kind of people because I grew up around them and like you really can it's just good because we're obviously entrained to be polarized mm -hmm. and turn on each other. 
And this is good medicine for not doing that. And on the theme of wearing many different hats, you say that the discipline that resonated with you most out of the things you've engaged with is Pachaguti Mesa tradition. If I'm saying that right, it's a Mm -hmm. form of Peruvian shamanism. Mm -hmm. What made this stand out from the other things you were exploring? And what can you tell us about the history of it and its practices and all that kind of good stuff? Sure. So after I worked with Patty, one of the last things that was said to me when I was done with Patty was you need to start moving more into kind of like Northern Native American or like Native American shamanism. A fellow student of Patty's said that to me as I was completing my work with her. And I didn't know what that meant, really. I've always been interested in Native American, you know, indigenous spirituality. It's always been a huge interest of mine, but it just so happened through synchronicity, <laughs> pure synchronicity. I, I happened upon a man that lived within the retro area. He lives on the outskirts out in the boonies who was a part of this shamanic tradition that has kind of extended from across the globe, but has originated in Peru. And I mentioned that man, Don Daniel Baxley, who became my maestro in this tradition. And the man who brought this from Peru to the U.S. and beyond is the maestro Kirindero Don Oscar Miro Casada. And this tradition is actually kind of a branch of two different shamanic traditions. One of them comes from the Quechua peoples of the Sacred Valley who are the descendants of the Inca, and another branch comes from northern coastal Kirindismo. So the Pachacuti Mesa is kind of like a fusion of those two together. So I began apprenticing in that tradition, but also that other specific branch I referred to earlier, which was northern coastal Kirindismo. And Don Daniel Baxley really took on the auspices of training me in that particular lineage because that is a lineage that was very heavily leans into Kirindero practices that are more folk-based of the Kirinderos in the northern coast of Peru, as well as uh, using the the psychedelic sacrament called San Pedro. And that's where the things that I learned from Patty and the integrations in like the stabilization of energy healing that I learned really began to flourish in a whole new way and a whole other level of mastery that helped me embrace and understand reality in a way that was way more comfortable for me. Cause there were many aspects and many experiences that I had with those daimonic realms that were actually quite scary. And I had many psychedelic experiences from my past that really blew me away, blew me out of the water and, you know, frankly terrified me about what was out there. But it was through that work, apprenticing in Northern Coastal Kirindismo. So that's actually the focus of the shamanic soul, less on the Pachacuti Mesa tradition apprenticeship and more on that specific branch of Northern Coastal Kirindismo, which is all based upon using a very specific altar set called the Mesa that you use as a sort of control panel. It's like your guiding post, your guiding ship, your console to interacting with the universe and interacting with the other realms. So it's based upon a certain set of artifacts, which we call art days. 
themselves having their own power and their own life and their own consciousness that are utilized in different ways on that altar that help you understand the way reality is set up, that helps you interface with the other worldly entities, beings, powers that exist in the natural world, and to use those as a way to be able to heal yourself, to heal others, and to interact. It's really about trying to gain medicine from that daimonic realm and bring it back into your community in some way, shape, or form, whether that benefits you or other people. I mean, if it benefits you, it does ultimately benefit other people. So that was a very grueling apprenticeship, that specific one that's outlined in the book. And some of those experiences are outlined in my comics because it required a one-on-one apprenticeship and it required pushing me to my ultimate limits. It required pushing me beyond anything that was still maybe triggering me from my PTSD days. It requires me embracing the darker side of myself, the shadow aspect of who I am. So I could really actually be a complete whole person because I think one thing in these alternative spiritual communities that's lacking is the ability to actually look at and embrace one's shadow. And even sometimes when people say that, I don't think they really know what that means (laughs) because it can be very terrifying. It's supposed to be very terrifying. Um, Terrence McKenna once said, who is a hero of mine, but he once said that it's not a true psychedelic experience unless you're terrified to go into it. (laughs) Like if your body is responding, like it's shaking, like it's about ready to die, then you know you're entering a real psychedelic experience. (laughs) And that's kind of what those experiences were. So I want to make that clear. The Patrakuti Mesa tradition, as much as I love it, and I'm still, you know, it's still a close part of my heart. That's not the specific tradition itself that I'm referring to in the book. The Northern Coastal Kirindismo is very much based upon using that psychedelic sacrament. And it can be very, there's no clear organization around it. It's very much a folk tradition that is based upon a lineage of families that extend back into Peru, all the way back to the Chavin culture of Peru, which can go, you know, some anthropologists and historians think that has been around even since like 2000 before the common era. So it's a very antiquated series of practices, but they've evolved over time too, because, you know, when the conquistadors came, you know, there was, you know, of course, a rejection of the indigenous practices by the Spanish, of course. And the curanderas and the curanderos of these traditions, specifically in Peru and in other parts of Latin America, were very sly in that they began incorporating Catholic elements into their already pre existing altar sets and cosmologies. So that's why a lot of these practices will have a lot of Hispanic languaging around it, as well as using different deities of the Catholic faith, like Jesus Cristo or, you know, Mary or St. Martin de Porres is a huge one in Peru. So using these various saints as like a replacement of some of the entities and powers that existed through these traditions. So it's, they fully recognize that it's all kind of like the same thing. It's just different names for the same powers and the same energy, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's something I've always appreciated about 
Curandismo, specifically from South American, Central American cultures. I've seen more resistance in the Northern Native American cultures to having that sort of syncretic nature. And I don't blame them <laughs> at all in any way, shape, or form. I've had a lot of discussions with members of the Northern Native American community about it. And I completely honor them trying to keep their traditions alive as is. But South America, especially, has been very open to allowing, you know, Westerners come and learn their practices. And for them, they feel like in order to change the beast, you have to change the nature of the beast, right? You can't fight and resist it. <laughs> and so what better way to, other than like guerrilla spirituality, right? You know, <laughs> you know, start bringing people in and learning the, like the true medicine of these ancient ways and just allowing, you know, people and being open to people to like spreading that and teaching it to other people and taking it out into the world. You know, I think there's a danger in that, too, because there's a lot of, like, insane commercialism surrounding that. There's a lot of people taking advantage of that and the capitalization. And, I mean, I struggle with that myself. So it's a double-edged sword. And I don't quite know if I'm even in the place where I know how to walk that yet. And I'm trying. You know, I want to honor the original spirit of these practices and trying to find a way to do that without being a typical Westerner, it's tough. <laughs> it can be, yes. And of course, it is a classic low-res criticism of the alternative world that if you're talking either conspiracy or UFOs or whatever, it's, oh, they're just trying to sell books. Yeah. It's like, yeah, well, a lot of people give up much more lucrative careers <laughs> to do something that they resonate with. And it's never been this boon to someone's pocketbook that they think it is. I mean, maybe it is now, but in the 90s, you know, when you're on the UFO circuit, because now all you can talk about is this experience you had in the woods mm -hmm. and no one wants to talk to you about anything else and you can't get an accounting job anymore, you're kind of committed. And it's not necessarily fun to be in that position, but right. it's always the criticism. And I really do like The Shamanic Soul. It is a guidebook to... Doing what you said is like, you just have to engage. It is a path. There are uh, bullet points along that path that can help you take each step and go layers deeper. But if you don't step onto the path, then you're, you're just spinning your wheels. And so I do like that the book is right there, wasting no time, breaking down over 20 different levels, starting with journaling and going all the way up to the, the heavy, potent stuff. And I guess I would just ask you as I can't believe we're almost out of time, but walk <laughs> us through just some of the major ones that you get into in the book, just to give people a taste of what the overall journey is once you get that journal. Sure. You know, journaling is just do it or don't do it. <laughs> but <laughs> I have always found helpful in the many scientific studies show how writing down and ascribing your experiences in some way, shape, or form helps in the processing of memory. Plus, it's great to go back and refer to like in strict magical traditions, like, you know, the Golden Dawn or, you know, something like that. It's like you have to have a journal and it's got to be very exact and you got to have the precise dates and astrological correspondences and blah, blah, blah. I'm not that heavy on it, but just finding a way that you can express what is happening to you. 
is the most important. And beyond that, I mean, yeah, I get into things like mapping the monomyth, which is based upon Joseph Campbell's monomyth idea of understanding the hero's journey and the cyclical nature of initiation, where you move into the underworld and then you resurface. And it's not a one-time thing. It's a cycle that happens through people's lives and understanding how that kind of maps to a human being's psychology, as well as engaging in dream time, which is very, very important, I think, because in the minds of many indigenous cultures, specifically the Australian Aborigines, is that dream time is actually the real reality. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's actually where it all happens. And so having a strong relationship with your dream time is very important. I don't think that means you have to remember every single dream, nor that you have to just be a master of lucid dreaming, but just making sure it is a regular part of your life and that you're listening to it and paying attention. And even more so than waking shamanic experiences that I may have, I'm always trying to document my dreams if I can remember them fully, if they will allow themselves to be manifested that way. Even if it's just a color or a sign or symbol, I can't, my wife and I to this day are tracking dreams that we tracked 10 years ago. And we've been able to kind of map and see everything that those symbols have set us up for to describe what's happening to us now. It's insane the way dream time interacts with reality. And then beyond that, you know, I get into just very practical things like setting up yourself, you know, it doesn't have to be a daily practice, but this does require discipline. You know, shamanic apprenticeship is you have to commit yourself. So, you know, starting with something simple, like just breathing basics, you know, basic, like meditative sort of breathing practices to get you in a rhythm, right? To get your body in a space where you begin to understand it more and become aware of the nuances of your body in the sense when something happens to you, where you might feel certain memories or pains come up. And then beyond that, you know, just other mind practices and eventually healing practices like energetic practices for the body's energetic matrix, whether you want to call it the aura or the electromagnetic field, the Quechua call it the pokpo, which is kind of like this like bubble of energy. It just harkens back to that idea that your body is not just a physical thing, it is consciousness itself. And so it's a way of mastering the flow of energy within your body so you can calm yourself in moments of need, so you can master your own ability to be able to respond to things that happen in your life so you're not so reactionary. The more you get to know your body and your mind and your psyche, You know, it's just like with another human being, right? The more comfortable you get with it and the more you're able to anticipate how somebody may respond to something, you can anticipate how something may interact with your body and mind. So things don't become so jarring or surprising. And, you know, that's kind of like where my list starts out of just things like that. But again, I always want to tell people, this is just a list, right? It's what worked for me at that time. And it may not even work for me now, right? You know, some of these things may not apply. It's it's what helped get me out of that place where I was 
so consumed by fear that I literally had boils eating away the flesh of my body, mm. you know, to getting me to a state of confidence and security where I don't have those ailments anymore. I'm perfectly healthy other than I might have, you know, a little too much whiskey every once in a while on a Saturday mm. night. But, you know, I'm happy and I know what my limits are. I know where my pathways are ahead of me for where I can pave my success. And so these practices, they don't have to necessarily always be done in sequential. They don't have to be adhered to like it's a strict creator doctrine. And some of them are, you know, there's a pillar of light exercise in there that is kind of a fusion between the Western mystery tradition and my understanding of the way that Pokpo, the energy body works from the Quechua standpoint. So mm. it's just, it's all, I just kind of took also what worked for me and mixed them together. And if it works for someone else, great. If it doesn't too, like I said, at the end of the book, you know, pitch it if it doesn't work for you. Yeah. Well, I really like it. It is a great guidebook. If someone's struggling to know how to start, they maybe have an itch to start, but they just aren't sure what to do. Right. It is a great guidebook. And thanks. I also wanted to try to shoehorn a little bit in here about comics in general and really the overlap between magic or the occult and esoteric and comics, because there's certainly an overlap. I mean, authors like Alan Moore and Grant Morrison are examples of that. Yep. And it seems like both of them have given their work a little extra boost by playing in esoteric waters. What are your thoughts on this overlap between comics and the occult? First of all, Alan Moore and Grant Morrison are the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Love them. And huge inspirations for me. But, you know, I would really kind of hearken to some of the work that Scott McCloud did in his work, Understanding Comics, which is a comic about comics, hmm. but not like the history necessarily more so than the idea and the philosophy of the medium, right? Because it's treated as a genre nowadays and not a medium of art in the mainstream. And Scott McCloud refers to Egyptian hieroglyphics and in, in early script as being images that told a story rather than just the way we see the alphabet as just abstract letters, you know? So with language, we've created this distancing with ourselves from the actual content of, of how we're trying to express it. But comics tap us back into that sort of hieroglyphic notion that the image itself becomes a narrative. And what I love about them so much is that you still get that literary aspect of the abstract language of English or what other native language that you know you're reading comics in but you're getting universal images that are adding a whole other component that augment the experience in such a way that i don't think you can find in any other medium it pulls you into specific moments that you don't get in a film that you can linger on and you can have relationship with from panel to panel in the sequential way of being able to lay out a page, which can be done in numerous ways. It doesn't just have to be like a simple grid. And so through that, I personally have felt that it is one of the more expressive emotive ways of being able to truly relay how an experience feels to me. Many of the comics that I have, I've tried to just write down in a book or some sort of prose, and it just doesn't have the effect 
there's something about an artist being able to pin their own experiences or the experiences of the other that you get another level of emotionality rather than just words that a typewriter or a word processor have created in these like abstract characters. You're getting that person's hand and the experience of what's gone on in that person's hand into a flowing image. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Alan Moore and Grant Morrison really have perfectly exemplified that. And I'll add others like Rick Veach, Robert Crumb, Bill Griffith. You know, there are so many creators out there that have pushed the threshold of the medium in ways that's beyond just this like superhero genre crap that's just like manufactured corporate whatever into creating actual products of art that you have to maneuver through with your hands, right? You have to flip the pages yourself and, and engage with it fully as an audience member. And then at the same time, they structure their narratives in such a way, like in Grant Morrison has said this of his work Invisibles, that whole comic book series is a magical sigil in and of itself. Mm-hmm. It is a magic spell. It's a work. And I know, I'm pretty certain Alan Moore does that with his works as well, and most specifically with Promethea, which is probably the best treatise on magic and Kabbalah that anybody could ever read, <laughs> is that is that particular comic book series. It's when people ask me and they want to learn about you know Kabbalah and magic and stuff, I don't refer them to my book. I give them Alan Moore's comics of Promethea. Like that's <laughs> where you start. It's the best perfect start. And it's beautiful as well. So it moves things beyond this sort of aesthetic notion of illustration and gives this whole other context to it in a way that really only magic can do. It is magic mm-hmm. in and itself. Yeah, I'm glad we could touch on it because it is rare to have a guest who can speak to it. But comic books are kind of a special medium. They feel more alive. And I've also heard people say, like you mentioned, image-based languages are kind of superior. I think by superior, I just mean like the connection between the non-physical world and the physical world, they're stronger through image-based language or comic books because there seems to be a relationship between our thoughts and some kind of realness to them. Mm -hmm. And in a comic book, your visualization is a little more guided because you're looking at the pictures. So like the characters can maybe become more alive and everyone's looking at the same characters rather than their own visualization. So maybe that's why there's some added potency. But I also think about V for Vendetta as a case study of how magic and manifestation work, because it's just weird how, He wrote V for Vendetta long time ago. It gets made into a movie. That alone is something that like a lot of comic book artists would probably like to see happen and maybe can't make happen. So it's funny that the occultists got it done. And then, of course, a couple years later, the guy Fox mask is so everywhere that it's nauseating, that it's annoying, that it actually cheapens the original material. I don't want to see another fucking guy Fox mask anymore. But in terms of creating potency, it's like how interesting that the occultist, the guy who knows how these things tend to work and has some skill at it, has this happen to his work that it can't be avoided. 
And I just think that's a really interesting case study. Yeah. Another aspect to that is another Alan Moore creation, actually, the character of John Constantine, mm -hmm. which has become a movie as well. And it's become like a TV series. But what's interesting is that many of the people who have written John Constantine, including Alan Moore himself, have claimed to actually meet him in real life. Huh. Like they've encountered the actual physical manifestation of him in one way, shape or form, which blows my mind. And really, I mean, I don't think I would ever want to work for any of the mainstream publishers, but I think I would do a John Constantine story just so I could, I could risk that happening yeah. because that would, that, that would be amazing. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, magic is a way of just, you know, you're talking about manifesting. So it's a way of, changing reality in accordance with one's will with one's own consciousness and that's really done through the auspices of any kind of art form really i mean any book any film i mean all of that is magic spells which is why you know you talk about the way the elite do control the populace it's like it's so obvious it's so like every commercial every newscast every every one of those things is a magic spell being implemented which is why it's even more important that people at the grassroots level create their own stuff because everything you create, every painting, every song, whatever, that is you and not just some like corporate board deciding what's trending right now. Like that's you countering that overlord magic, that dominator magic that's bombarding us at all times and levels out the playing field and, Comics are just a great way to get that done because you are not, you're knocking out so many birds with one stone Yeah, <laughs> because that's the way, you know, art has to be done either from an, an audio standpoint, a visual standpoint, a literary standpoint, so on and so forth. So you're, you're kind of knocking out a few of those birds already. <laughs> I like it. I like it. And so before we really wrap this up, I wanted you to tell the people about the novel Red Mass that you mentioned, because I think it will appeal to this audience. It certainly appeals to me. It's the one thing I didn't get to, but tell us about it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so this is actually the first book I ever wrote, and I wrote it during my shamanic training. So it kind of incorporates a lot of those experiences on top of everything I was researching about various conspiracies throughout history and so on and so forth. But it's about a guy named Gregor Sampson who is a conspiracy theorist and he gets involved with this group. And that is a take on Gregor Samsa of Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis. But he gets involved in a group of psychedelic revolutionaries that are kind of the counter to the men in black phenomenon. So the men in black phenomenon are men in black who try to, you know, make people forget or to strong arm people into not speaking about various occurrences or phenomenon. He encounters a group of people that wear red suits and they're from the order of the red hand. And that's their organization. And they're these like underground shamanic sort of peoples that are trying to get people to remember occurrences and to not forget supernatural occurrences and to make it public and to make it to counter that, you know, to make sure that the dominators don't, who I call the enterprise, that's my Illuminati mm -hmm. in the book. That's what, and I call them that in real life too, the enterprise. Cause that's kind of, I feel like they're, it's more like that an enterprise of elites 
that are constantly trying to make life more mundane and more, you know, and control us. And the red hand, this red agency of people are actually trying to like fight against that and to make supernatural phenomenon just part of regular reality, like it used to be in the ancient days. And so Gregor Samson gets linked into these people and initiated into their group and combats against it. And it takes place in my home area of Kansas city. So it's got a lot of, you know, local restaurants and, (laughs) you know, locales there. So that's a little fun. But what's interesting about this is that after I wrote, because it was based upon a dream I had a long time ago where I encountered these beings in red. And well, after I wrote this book. And then as I got initiated in my shamanic path and I kind of got through that initiated part where I started teaching, I started encountering different shamanic practitioners and curanderos across the planet that have actually referenced that there is an order called the order of the red hand that exists like secretly in society. And there's even a book I found that references it. I'll, I can't remember the name of it, but I'll, I'll shoot it to you. Sure. And it just, it kind of blew my mind. And I even had a Carandero tell me a one time that out in the wild in the Andes that he met a being like that, that had these like supernatural powers. They were dressed in red and interacted with him while he was on a uh, Pacawachu, a vision quest. And it, it blew my mind. I'm like, what? Hmm. Like what? Like what? So if anybody out there from the order of the red hand, if it's real and you're listening, hit me up (laughs) because (laughs) that would be like mind blowing if that happened. But yeah, there it's fun. I mean, they take these, you know, Terrence McKenna talks about like invisible architects of reality. And so they take these invisible architects, like machine elves of reality that you find in the DMT realms and they manifest them into these worms that they swallow. And so the red agents are perpetually in this like psychedelic state that gives them like superhuman powers at the same time. All right. So the novel is very experimental and has a lot of like beat poetry kind of like vibe, like stream of consciousness sort of stuff in it as well. Because I'm trying to emulate the psychedelic experience through language as well. But yeah, I'd be interested to hear what you think of it when you tackle it. So let me know. Yeah. Seems very cool. And that kind of jogged in my memory that when I was looking through everything you've talked about uh, with your work in your Gnostic comic book series, the Simon Myth Chronicles, that is a character that has a, a pretty intense potency for you, right? Yeah, huge. He speaks to you in your imagination, huh? <laughs> yeah, Simon Myth actually is an unseen ally that came to me a long time ago. He's a daimonic entity and a being from beyond that has become one of my cadre of spiritual beings, spirituality. I don't know what, whatever people want to call it. Yeah, that's awesome. And he hit on me early in my shamanic initiation and has kept wanting to be manifested some way in this reality and and (laughs) has always been there for me to kind of help guide me in ways of being when I am getting too fearful or, you know, kind of gives me someone to emulate to in certain ways. But I've written like five or six novels of this guy, but none of them ever worked out. And I was just distraught because I keep wanting to manifest this guy. It's taken about 10 years. And my wife was like, 
my God, will you just do a comic of them already? Because that's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> and so I finally buckled down last year and started the comic book series and I couldn't be happier. Like, this is it. This is the way that this character is wanting to come into this reality and into our waking world. And I'm so happy with the work I'm doing. I'm working on issue two right now. Um, issue one will be out of my shop soon. You, I'm actually have like hundreds of copies with me to sell at Comic Con, Planet Comic Con in Kansas City in April. And then it'll be available in my shop for people to buy. But if somebody wants a copy to hit me up, I'll, you know, we can do a PayPal exchange or something. But the culmination of everything that I've learned with magic, my kind of Gnostic view of the world, there'll be Kabbalah in there later in the series. I'm just, I'm having so much fun with it. Nice. Yes. Well, happy to help spread the word about you, Simon. Uh, if you could throw me a bone <laughs> on the astral plane, I would appreciate it. But <laughs> he will, he will. Yeah. He's, he's a great guy. Nice. Well, as we wrap this up, I guess, give people the rundown of the other irons you have in the fire, remind them of the two books and the things we've talked about and the links and all that good stuff. Sure. Yeah. So. My two books from Llewellyn or Shamanic Kabbalah, that's already out. You can purchase that at Llewellyn's website, uh, the publisher or Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever. And then the Shamanic Soul will be coming out this June. You can pre-order it now. So please, I, I'm, we're always happy to receive pre-orders. That gives us like a really good projection of how things are going to go and generating that energy. So Thank you there. You can order my book, Red Mass, on Amazon and my comics, Psychonaut Presents, one through four. You can get on my website, danielmullerweb.com, as well as Simon Myth Chronicles. And I'm actually collecting Psychonaut Presents into a single volume that I'll have available at Comic-Con and hopefully it'll be available out um, on the web to buy soon as well. Got many other comics and irons in the fire, too. I'm working with a buddy of mine who's writing some stuff. We're doing our own version of some superhero stuff that I'm drawing up and we're having a great time with that. And there's more to come in the future. <laughs> Beautiful. I like it. And uh, just really impressed with all the stuff you got going on and your work ethic. And I love the artwork in Psychonaut Presents. It's very intense as those journeys tend to be, but the visual reference is great thank you and uh it's been great talking to you man any final words of wisdom to leave the good people of the internet with to carry forth into their day uh, not really other than just people need to keep it psycho <laughs> i like it well serious pleasure thanks again and keep doing what you do all right thanks man hallelujah higher side chatters finally back after three long weeks on the road and just in time to serve up the last show needed for April. And I thought it was a lot of fun. The overlap between comic books and the occult is interesting terrain to me. Learning about shamanic traditions and entheogenic ceremonies beyond what we typically hear, like ayahuasca, that's also fun. That Daniel is a THC listener, too. I mean, that's also something that adds a bit to the recipe. So hopefully we all found something interesting in there. One thing I noticed was that he said he wasn't part of a seer bloodline, but he did kind of mention some childhood trauma, and that's an overlap that seems to be just as strong as any, pretty high on the list when you explore these people who have the paranormal overlay to their early life. 
maybe unrelated in his case, but Psychonauts and Paranormal Experiences, again, another huge overlap in the Venn diagram of life. And who even knows if we should be thinking about our lives linearly? Maybe he had childhood experiences of seeing strange things and strange crafts because later in life, he got familiar with the Carandismo tradition. It's a tangled web we weave, and who knows where it starts. I'm the last one in the world that should be trying to diagnose someone's second sight. But the San Pedro intel was pretty good for me. Maybe that's something I can explore. But the biggest takeaway, really, is something that I think about a lot and probably talk a lot about, maybe even too much in my personal life. But maybe it doesn't make it to the air a whole lot on THC. And that's just how the biggest changes in your life come from an internal change, not an external one. So limit how much you worry about the big cabal. Limit how much bandwidth you give to thoughts about big sweeping change in the system or how you're going to find your success after the government does something. Yes, we might want to end the Fed, but we also want to eat right and do 50 push-ups a day, something like that. We spend a lot of time thinking about the world out there and very little cultivating the world in here and other cheesy stuff like that. But I still think the point should be well taken. So many people I know have spent their 20s and sometimes even their 30s in this position of, well, I'm going to follow my passions as soon as we get the system to change a bit or if we can get that minimum wage up or whatever it is. When the overall situation is better, I'll make my move. And I just think about how little the system does actually change and how many decades are too many decades to be thinking about that in your short time here. How many people and how many different generations have wasted a lot of those key years, as John Mayer put it, waiting on the world to change. You could also say it's a little like the Jordan Peterson thing of before you fix the world, just clean your room. Maybe it's some kind of defense mechanism that we spend so much time thinking about the things we know that we can't change because we are not really ready to change the things that are within our means or we don't want to confront any of that. Again, with I don't know why I keep getting into this lane where it seems like you should be laying on my couch and paying me for the hour, <laughs> but there is some wisdom in that. It doesn't mean that the system is good or just or fair, just that it is what it is. And no matter your interests, you can find a way to make a living from them or to live a better life within a corrupt system. And entheogens can do a lot to help you change yourself internally or change your relationship with the outside world so that you can find your way in it. But going back to the comic book thing, comics as a medium is really interesting because we kind of know that in any visual arts that painting the best picture or creating the best representations of the mental image, the clarity of what's presented is typically the best. How well does the final product align with what was in your mental space, what you drew down, what they used to say was divine? But how well represented are the images? That's why people like Joseph Farrell don't have a lot of respect for modern art or abstract art, because from a certain perspective, well, that's bullshit. That doesn't really do anything. 
I like a little abstract art here and there, but what do I know? I'm an uncultured Missouri heathen. But yes, comic books. <laughs> you would think that a story that includes the images and gets everyone locked onto the same visualization, because you have the training wheels right there, there's no ambiguity, there's no interpretation really. I can see how there could be a mechanism there that talented people could play with and take advantage of if they know a little bit about magic as well as art. Just interesting. Roundabout way of saying I had a good time. But in higher side news, yes, the trip is over. Three long weeks on the road driving from San Diego through St. George, Utah. You know, if you're driving through Utah... Most people would stop at Salt Lake. I've been to Salt Lake too many times. I stopped in St. George. Quaint. Nice little place. I recommend it. We went through Denver, Kansas City, St. Louis, Chicago, back to St. Louis, Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, San Marcos, another sleeper city. San Marcos. Quite nice. No one's talking about San Marcos. You get the tubes, you get on the river, you have a good time. And San Antonio, another one of America's hidden gems. Not a lot of people talk about that river walk. Sure, it's a little bit like the Vegas Strip on a river in Texas. You got your corporate places. You're going to see a Bubba Gumps. You're going to see a Hard Rock. But it's still fun. And then we came back through New Mexico, made sure we took some family photos at the Roswell sign. And New Mexico is probably the most boring state there is, and I... Don't see myself going back for any reason. Had one last hurrah in Phoenix, another fun place, and then made our way back home. We had meetups in Denver and Dallas. Both were fun. Denver's had significantly higher attendance, but lots of people met me and the baby and the wife. We had some drinks and good conversations. It felt like the Denver crew already kind of knew each other, and this definitely wasn't their first rodeo. That is great to see. Some of the meetups on the calendar have been recurring, and why shouldn't they be? But both of them were really fun. Wish I could have gave you more notice. Just a little tough when being on the road. And yeah, this trip was just kind of a vacation, but we were really getting out to see friends and family, show off the baby, as well as scouting for a place to move. Maybe Colorado. Maybe back to Missouri, maybe Texas. We know we really can't live here, especially when our daughter gets to be uh, school age. But sadly, we came home not really feeling anywhere 100%. I was hoping we'd find clarity, but we're all over the map. Colorado might be the best compromise. Missouri, we obviously know the most people. Texas is an income tax-free state. So there are pros and cons everywhere. We just know that we don't really want to live in San Diego anymore. I said it. The Band-Aid's been ripped off. I don't know, though. I just hoped that I would come back being like, hey, we went here, we saw a few places, we had the best time, and we know that here is the place for us. And instead, it was like a big shoulder shrug, and nothing really clicked all that much. So the jury is still out. But that's my problem. In terms of the show, I think we had a pretty good, diverse lineup of episodes, even with me feeling a bit overworked and on the road. But we had Jeffrey Smith, Secret Ingredients, Genetic Roulette, and GMO 2.0. Man, I thought that was a great episode. 
especially the second hour. Not trying to just hype up the plus thing. But once we got through the fundamentals and we got deeper into the ecosystem breaking things that could be happening out there, it gets really intense. Sean Peter, the author of Anti-Warhol, I thought that was an interesting ride with a fun character. Probably unexpected to almost everyone. We got back into it with Ole Demigard, you know, an OG of THC, with an interesting take on the nations who signal they might be interested in Bitcoin. But even if you didn't like that stuff, we still talked about the wag the dog template and media manipulation and how we don't really know if real events are real or not. Funny enough, I just saw a news headline about a U.S. war veteran sending Hollywood war equipment to the real war in Ukraine. And it's like, is a Hollywood movie helmet as effective as a real helmet? Because I always thought that stuff was just like paper mache and just whatever bullshit it needed to be to look good on screen. Now you're telling me that that stuff's good enough for a real conflict? Something's up. Something's up, guys. And then, of course, we also had Gabriel Custodiet talking about privacy and personal security and freedom in the digital dystopian age. I liked that one as well. As much as I need to shore up my physical game, my health game, I need to shore up my digital online game as well. I'm still using a Gmail address for Christ's sake. I'm a creature of habit. I never want to take the time to actually set up something new, although I do have a ProtonMail email address that I only use when I'm reaching out to guests that I'm embarrassed to reach out to with a Gmail address. Yeah, that's the kind of person I am. But I would say a great month of shows and a really great month to grab those extra members-only hours now that I mention it. I could really use you guys right now, just thinking about how bad it's getting for some colleagues out there, thinking about a move on the horizon, and really just thinking about you. You like the show. You're missing half of it. It makes no sense. But in today's episode, we talked about how the Mesa altar reflects how reality is set up according to their tradition, or lack thereof. It is kind of a broad tradition, but it's interesting to see the interplay between altar top and reality structure. We talked about why uncovering one's true will can be so difficult. We compared an ayahuasca ceremony to a San Pedro one. Daniel knows them both very well. We talked about shamanic guidance, UFOs, and the shamanic overlap, and steps one can take to increase one's shamanic competency. Stuff you love, stuff you need. Sign up for Plus. Get your seven-day free trial. Make sure THC Plus works with the podcast app you already use. If you're using Podcast Addict, that answer is clearly yes. If you're using Podverse, that's also yes. If you're using Spotify, well, you might not even be able to get the free show now, okay? So get off of Spotify. If you want to listen to Sports Talk or the Hamilton soundtrack, sure, Spotify is great, but not for this. Anyway, yeah, you know, the plus pitch. That's what we're doing. You can finally feel good about supporting the independent media you love so very much. And a huge thanks to those who do fuel the fire. You are the best, and I hope you feel as satisfied as ever. On the Higher Side Meetup calendar, the next three events where you can find your new best friends are Wednesday, May the 4th, Star Wars Day, 
the Seattle THC Inquisition. I don't think this is the first one. It's happening at the Central Cafe. Be there, and may the force be with you. Saturday, May 7th, the Face Your Freedom Rally Meetup at Liquid Planet in Missoula, Montana. The Face Your Freedom Rally will be held at the Missoula County Courthouse starting at 9.30 a.m. on May 7th. This meetup at Liquid Planet is the pregame for any supporters of THC and the Propaganda Report who think freedom is kind of essential and worth fighting for. Is that you? It very well might be. Also Saturday, May 7th, the Pentaluma THC meetup in Pentaluma, California. I had to look that up, but it is north of San Francisco. I will not be able to be there, but it's at Ray's Deli and Tavern. Tell Ray I said thanks for hosting such an amazing group of special people. And there you have it. Attend a meetup or hop on the calendar and make your own local meetup. It is how we win. But I'm getting out of here. Lots of life maintenance to get back into, and I'm ready to hit the ground running in May. Two good interviews already recorded. Another three great ones on the schedule. It's a beautiful thing we got going on here. Stick with me, and I'll keep trying to give you my best. Huge thank you to our guest, Daniel, who shared a lot of interesting insights. If you're into comics at all, check out his work. If you're into shamanism at all, check out his books. Take care of you and yours. I'm getting out of here. Your move, Karen Dismo, compadres, serious psychonauts, and esoteric artists. Your fucking...
And that is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums. And you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com, where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check, mail to the P.O. box. And I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me and cheers to a better tomorrow.